Well, it is uh, good to be back, to be back in the pulpit, good to be back to be able to preach, and particularly to preach to my church family. Um, one of the overriding themes of the Word of God is God's desire to have a people of whom he could say, I am theirs, and they are mine. For God to be able to say, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And one of the many remarkable stories of the Bible is God's unending perseverance to this end. To raise up a people, to have a people that are his, that call him God, that call him Abba, Father. He started way back in creation, in the perfection of, of Adam and Eve. But that became corrupted. You know, his, his original plan was corrupted when sin entered into their lives. And then he moved on to a calling out of people, the people, the Jewish people, the, the, the people of Israel, to be his people. But constantly they fell into sin. Constantly they pursued other idols, other false gods. I was... Uh, reading in the book of Jeremiah while I was kind of, you know, studying for First Thessalonians where we're going to be here today. And um, I came to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 33. It's likening Israel's unfaithfulness um, and pursuing other idols and other gods. It likens their unfaithfulness to an unfaithful wife, you know, throwing herself pursuing other lovers other than her husband. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, 33, I love you know, God just pretty much lays it all out here. He says, how you plot and scheme to win your lovers, even an experienced prostitute could learn from you. That's how bad God's called out people had become. A people who he wanted to say, I want to be their God. I want them to be my people. I want them to look to me. But they constantly threw themselves at other gods. Their ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ led then to the birth of the church. The church. A called out people. A people who are saved, who are redeemed, who are bought through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Christ says, I will build my church. God's responsible for his bride. And of the church, he says, the gates of hell shall not stop it. It will not prevail over the church. The church, us, we are Christ. We are the visible extension of the life of Christ here on this side of eternity, here on earth. And the only way you can be a member of the true church is to be made alive in Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man will come to the Father but through me. It's only through Jesus Christ. Now, if we are a called out people, if we are today to be the people whom God is saying, these are my people, you're God's people, and, and we're to be looking at him to say, Father, he's my Lord, he's my Savior. If that's that relationship that this church is to be, then certainly there are certain qualities about a church 
that we're to have to identify ourselves as the true church, as the true called out ones. Well, what we're going to be doing uh, for the next few months, we are going to be going to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I encourage you to go ahead and, and turn there to chapter 1 today. We're going to be in it for a couple of months. Um, powerful book. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It is the first time I've actually preached through the book of Thessalonians, although I've done some Bible studies in it. Uh, the book of Thessalonians, while you turn there, this is one of the many epistles of the New Testament. And to be clear, an epistle is not the wife of an apostle, and I know you've all heard that before. Um, an epistle, though they're very important to us in the New Testament. The epistle is a series of 21 letters that are inspired by God and they are sent to the church, sometimes directly to the church in an area or sent to an individual for their church that they are pastoring. But we have 21 of these epistles. They go all the way from the book of Romans all the way to the book of Jude. Those 21 letters that we have in the New Testament are our epistles and they are essential to the church for us to know what the qualities of the church are, to, for us to know what it means to be a called out, to be a people that are God's, and for him to be our father. Interestingly, of those 21 epistles, 14 of them, God used the Apostle Paul. He inspired the Apostle Paul to write the truths. And 1 Thessalonians is, is no exception to that. Um, Paul is the human author that God used in this. And these, these epistles are essential for us to understand truth, to understand doctrine, for us to understand the nature of God and the format of what church is supposed to be, what the qualities of the church are. And again, I want to remind you, and we're going to stress this over and over again today and hopefully throughout this series, that the church, us, we, we are Christ. The church is Christ. The church is his bride. His people. This is not a man-made assembly together. This is not a man-made concept or a man-made item, you know, uh, or that why we are here together. This, we are the bride of Christ. And you see this right out of the gate of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, in, in, the, in the first chapter, we're going to see five qualities that really make a true church. In other words, what are the pillars of our church? What are our foundations? I mean, churches can vary. You know, there, there's, there's different techniques, different emphases that they have depending on the, the culture that they're living in, the needs that are there. It, it can vary, but there are some pillars. There are some foundational things that make a church a true church. And I want to look at five of them this morning. I'm going to invite you, if you would, to stand together with me. I'd like to read uh, those ten verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, Paul and Silvanus, also known as Silas, Paul and Silas and Timothy, to the th church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. 
For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescued us from the wrath to come. You may be seated. So let's talk about five qualities of the church that I see identified here. And the first is, 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 it might seem simplistic, but it is essential. Number one, a true church is a saved church. A true church is made up, we know it's made up of individuals. The church isn't these frames, it isn't the drywall, it isn't the windows, it isn't the carpeting. The church is made up of individuals. And a true church is made up of saved individuals. You know, church is not any gathering of like-minded people that get together for moral or religious purposes. The true church is the called-out church. Redeemed people that come together in the name of Jesus Christ to lift one another up, to pray, to worship, to challenge, to teach, to, to evangelize. A true church is a saved church. Now, there's a lot of indications of that in these first 10 verses. You know, in verse 1, it talks, you know, to the church of Thessal- the Thessalonians in God the Father. You know, in God the Father. Again, in verse 3, it says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith your labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it goes on further in verses 4 and 5. It talks about, you know, being in the Holy Spirit. So you got the whole trinity there. That this church, a true church, is in God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Holy Spirit. And I want to stress this point to you, folks, because one of Satan's greatest weapons is a counterfeit faith. One of Satan's greatest tools in this world, in this culture that we live, is an imitation of what the church is. Make no mistake, Satan doesn't care how far you miss the mark by. He just wants you to miss the mark. He doesn't care how close you get to it. Ah, you missed out heaven just by the skinny of You were so close. You, know, you did so many of the right things. You, you read the right you know, books, you know, you read God's word, yeah, 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 went to a church, you know, you participated, you did so much, but you, you just missed it. Satan doesn't care. As long as you miss it, that's what he wants. He doesn't care how much you miss it by as long as you miss it. And all over this county, all over our county here, all over our state, all over our nation, all over the world, there are millions of counterfeit offerings that Satan is using to confuse people. Sometimes even to confuse true believers. 
But we need to understand there is only one true church. And it is the church that is in Christ, that is in the Father, that is in the Holy Spirit. That's the only true church. It's not just because people gather together, again, for the common purpose, for good moral and and religious reasons. That doesn't make them a church. The Bible is very clear at who the called-out people are. They are those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so this, this opening of 1 Thessalonians here, this isn't just you know, some religious flowery greetings that Paul's giving him. You know, there, there's, there's power in these words and things that he is, is expressing to open up the letter. Matter of fact, uh, 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 one of the things I love about the epistles is a lot of times you can go back to the book of Acts and you can trace, you know, the birthing of that church, like the, the church at Thessalonica, the birthing of that church and, and Paul on his missionary journey and how they were received. And you can see how this truth is lived out. Now, Paul, again, he isn't just using flowery words here. They, they meant something to the people, and he meant what he was saying here. Um, if you go back to Acts chapter 17, you know, this is where the, the, the church at Thessalonica was, was born. It says in Acts 17, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, And according to Paul's customs, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So in other words, for two to three weeks, Paul is going to the the synagogues, and he's he's telling them about Jesus Christ. You know, explaining and giving evidence that says that, that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and the number of leading women. So this is the church. This is the birthing of the church. You know, many people began to make that connection in their faith, and they gave their life, their heart to Jesus Christ. They're, they're forgiven here. But verse 5, it goes on and said, But the Jews, they became jealous, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring him out to the people. So, so the church is birthed in the midst of turmoil. You know, in the midst of very difficult situations. So Paul goes to Thessalonica. He, he establishes a church, or God uses him to establish a church. From there, Paul goes to Berea for a short time. Um, you know, he, he leaves Silas and Timothy in Thessalonica. And then Paul continues his missionary journey to Berea. From Berea, he goes to Athens. And then from Athens, he travels to Corinth, where we get First and Second Corinthians, him writing back to the church at Corinth. Um, we are not given the exact amount of time that happened between the time he left Thessalonica and the time he is at Corinth. But as you read it, you kind of get an indication that it was probably less than a year that Paul often went to these places. He was there for a few months, and he moved on. Sometimes he stayed for years, but it makes indications of that. But more times than not, he's only there for weeks or, or, or months at the very best. So he's probably there less than a year in, you know, after being at Thess- Thessalonica. He is now in Corinth. And the church is established there. After a year, Silas and Timothy rejoined Paul, if you want to look this up, it's in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, and they begin to give an update 
about the church at Thessalonica, the one that, you know, I believe it probably preceded him writing this letter, you know, back to them. And so it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long, you know, to see you. You see, this message of the gospel, it stuck with these people. They didn't just have a, you know, an emotional reaction to what Paul was saying. They didn't just have an intellectual reaction. I mean, a year later, they were still living faithful in their faith. And, and uh, you know, Paul gets this report from, from Timothy and, and from Silas. The message of the gospel, the message of the church is not in word only, but it, it is in power. And it changes lives, it changes people. And it did them. First Thessalonians in chapter 1 here in verse 5 says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So, I mean, this is a saved church. These are redeemed believers. And I want to tell you, this is our heart here at Colonial Baptist. This is our heart here as a church. It's not about building numbers here. But it's about building the kingdom. As a church, we should never just settle for getting people to come to church. That's not the end. That might be a means for them to get here to hear the message, but, but we should never rest there. That our point is to grow the church big and that numbers become so important to us. Folks, we want people to be saved. We want people to be in Christ. We want people to be in the Father, in the Holy Spirit. Christ is our hope for that. Christ is our only hope for that ever happening. You know, verse 3 of chapter 1 here, it, it, it should be our theme verse. You know, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God the Father. That's a church. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness in our hope in God the Father. Yeah, that's the church. That's our foundation. And part of the struggle in, at least particularly the American churches today, is that, you know, there is that underlining goal, there is that underlining pressure to be bigger, to have the numbers. And as a result of that, we find in churches that sometimes they are sacrificing the purity of the church. And they're forgetting that this is in our design. This is God's design. I mean, any single individual that comes to church, any individual that comes to church and just settles for having a form of godliness without really having a, a true miracle conversion because every salvation, every conversion is a miracle, every person who just settles for that, of being religious, you know, each one of them, you know, becomes a, kind of a weak link, a broken link in a chain. And the church suffers. 
when that's what the church becomes. And it's not saying that the church doesn't do some good things, that churches don't do some good things, that individuals don't do some good things for Christ. But as a church, remember, God wants a people he can point to and say, these are my people. And so that's why it's so important that everyone here that we know, that we keep that message before you of the need to be saved, that it's not enough just that you come here, that we talk about it, whether you've been here for 10, 15, 20 years, you've been involved, you know, in church for your whole life. The issue is, have you made that personal decision for Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't, you know, Christ can't point to you and say, you know, this is, this is my child. And that's why it's so important to us. It's not enough just to get you in church. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we don't show favoritism, assuming that someone, you know, if they dress the part and they speak the right language, we just don't assume that they are truly saved because it is a personal heart decision. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, that you accepted it not from the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, and also performed its work in you who believe. And that's what we want. We don't want people to come here because of personalities, of individuals, you know, because of programs or whatever they might be. We want them to come here because of the word of God. That is what the church is. So to that end, we constantly challenge each other to search our hearts, examine our relationship with Christ, examine the genuine of our relationship to make sure that we don't fall short. So that's the first quality of the church. I know I took a lot of time on that one. That's an important one. Uh, we're going to talk about these others a little bit quicker here. Second quality of a true church is that it imitates Christ. A true church, one of its foundational pr principles is that we are imitators of Christ. Okay, verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, you see, the goal and the purpose of the church is to produce a Christ-likeness. That's our goal here. Again, even if you're saved, even if you're a true born-again believer, our goal is not just to have you here, you know, to, to count in the roll call. Our goal is to help you on this side of eternity become more like Jesus Christ, to take on a Christ-likeness. And when we're talking about that, we're not talking about trying to get you all to dress alike or talk the same, have the same mannerisms, you know, have the, the same giftedness, same abilities within the church. We're not externally trying to, externally trying to clone Christians. We are trying to inwardly restore broken sinners. And that is what the church is all about. You know, a verse that I often allude to, probably four or five times a year in messages, is Galatians 2, chapter 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let me just focus on that phrase, Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. What does that mean? For Paul to say, I'm crucified with Christ, I'm living but it's, this isn't me. 
but Christ is living in me. You know, Paul wrote that verse too as well. I want to tell you, for Paul, what Christ living in me meant, it looked like, you know, four missionary journeys that he went on. You know, stopping in in dozens upon dozens of, of cities and preaching the gospel and planting churches, teaching thousands and thousands of people about the Messiah, about their Savior. You know, that, that's what Christ's call to his life was. For Paul to not do this would, for him, would be for him to not fulfill what Christ in me was. Why Paul, well, God, God called Paul. For a true Christian, Christ lives in me. If you're a true Christian, you've got to be able to say this verse, Galatians 2.20. So I want you to ask yourself, what does that look like for you? What do you think it is? Why do you think God saved you? Why do you think God looked down and said, I, I want Larry Marvel to be my child? Why did he do that? What does Christ lives in me look like? I want you to ask yourself that question. You know, what does it look like to you? And insert your name here, not the I. Put your name in whatever it is. It's going to be different for each and every one of us. There's some foundational things that to be a Christian, what it means, what it looks like that Christ lives in us. We can talk about holiness because God says that we're to be holy even as he is holy. That's for all believers. He's given us spiritual gifts. He's given us talents. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 and 7 here. Says there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. In other words, we've all got different gifts. We all have abilities to do different things for God. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. I love that variety of effects. In other words, He might be calling you to be a teacher. Some to teach to three, some to teach to three thousand. It doesn't matter. What does Christ in me look like for you? And you're calling. You have been given gifts. You've been given abilities. It says, but each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, that means you have been given these gifts and abilities, not for yourself, but for the church, for the called together believers. That's one of the universal things. We all have different gifts and abilities, but the same call to use them for one another. Christ lives in me, talks about our testimony. I preached on this just before the Missions Awareness Month, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Every single true Christian is an ambassador. It's a representative. So, and these are foundational things. So, so the church is Christ, and the church, you and I, we are to be image bearers of his name. I know that this, is, this really dates me, but remember years ago, one of the evangelistic questions that you would ask of people who are in church claiming Christ, to say, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And think about that. What does Christ in me look like? What does Christ in you look like? Is there even enough evidence to convict you of being accused of being a Christian? I mean, this is an important point. You know, that we are not only saved, but then with that salvation, one of our qualities is that we want to become like Christ. 
an imitator of Jesus Christ. Number three, let me talk about a true church. A true church is a suffering church. A true church is a suffering church. Catch what it said there in the middle of verse six. It said, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received this word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the word of God. You know, it wasn't easy for them in Thessalonica when Paul came to preach them. There was a lot of tribulation that was taking place. There was a lot of opposition to this. Matter of fact, if you go back to to Acts chapter uh, 17, verses 4 and 5, it says some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. The church, this is the early church. It says, but the Jews there, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. This church was suffering. This church was, it wasn't popular to be a Christian. It wasn't popular to, to convert. It wasn't popular to step away from their, you know, the, the, their Jewish heritage and to embrace Jesus Christ. I mean, get the picture of this church living in the midst of a very unwelcoming climate, an unwelcoming society. I mean, the message of the cross was an offense to the Jews. But this church didn't water down the message. And as a result of that, the, the culture was hostile to them. And our, our goal as a church should not be to fit in. It should not be to be accepted by the world's culture. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. There's this underlining truth there that the gospel doesn't make sense to the unsaved world. So it's going to be opposed you know, our goal isn't to, to have it become mainstream, to have it, you know, become universally accepted, because it's foolishness to the unsaved world. It's, it's an issue within the heart. John chapter 16, verse 33 says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. So a true church is going to suffer. True church is, is going to have persecution. Okay? Number five, or excuse me, number four. A true church is a testimony for Christ. A true church is a testimony for Christ. Verse seven and eight. It says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, those were kind of neighboring towns that were close to them. In other words, you know, they, they heard about it, the neighboring towns heard about your testimony, but not only them, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. In other words, I don't, I, I don't need to correct you on anything of this. You were doing the right thing. That the gospel message was going out from there. There was that testimony, you know, to... to you know, parts of the known world of this church. You know, and, and, and I love that phrase that the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. To 
can be a church we call that the word of God, the true word of God is sounding forth from you. You know, we, we just came through a missions month. And, you know, missions month is always a great reminder to us of how we are a part of what is going on, not just in New Carlisle or in Enon or in some Springfield areas or Donaldsville, North Hand. It's a reminder that that's not just where our testimony is. But in the Dominican Republic, you know, where we are part of the Roy's church family and we help that they can be there, that they can train up pastors that then go out into the Dominican Republic, into areas that have no gospel, and they, they plant churches and they tell people about Jesus Christ. That's our message going forth to the Dominican Republic, to places like PRC and the Safe Harbor House and the Women at Risk Ministries that's taking this message into the darkest crevices of the world. Places like Japan. We have two missionaries there, the Midas. And you know, I was thinking about this while I was up in Alaska concerning the Midas. Um, I think we've probably supported them for some 40 years. I think I, I've been here for almost 22 years. And uh, they were one of the first mission. I think they were the first missionary that we took on. Uh, and, and I remember when I first came here, you know, so many of the prayers, they were, they were, you know, trying to establish, it's very hard in that hostile environment of Japan to establish a church. And it's just been so exciting the last five years to see that church established. And they had their own building, and, and their children's ministry are outgrowing the building, and they're praying about, you know, needing more. And, and that's the word going forth from us, because we're part of what they're doing. They're part of us. For the Hendersons who are over there, who are more involved in a one-on-one ministry, sitting down and, 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 and talking with young people about Jesus Christ. You know, for, for the radio ministries that we are involved in. That's, that's us having... That's why, that's why our Missions Month is so important, to remind ourselves of what we are a part of. It's not just about, you know, we, you know, we foreign no more. You know, it, it's about what's happening out there as well. You know, you add to those things our own local focuses on children and teens and families and seniors. You know, a, a true church looks to make Christ known. And that needs to be one of our foundational things. And finally, very quickly, a true church keeps Christ's return in view. This is important. A true church keeps the return of Jesus Christ in view. Verse 10 says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescued us from the wrath to come. This is one of the things that, that, that Paul noticed about this church, is that they were here on this side of eternity. They were serving. They were making the gospel known. They were being a testimony. They were being God's people. But they always had their eye on Christ's return. I mean, the reason they could do all these things is that someday Christ was coming back. Someday all this would be over. Eternity would start. You know, they understood that we're here for a purpose. That God has called us. God has called you out for a purpose. A mission. And that's to spread the gospel. That is to train other believers, to equip believers that then can go out and share the gospel. And all of this that we do here, all that we do is colonial, I want you to, and I want you to hear this very clear and hear me to the end on this. This is not our goal. 
This is not our end. Our goal and our end is eternity. And it is heaven. It is Christ's return. It is that new heaven. It is that new earth that these things all pass away. This is an issue of our faithfulness. This is an issue of our obedience here. This is an issue of, of a struggle that each and every one of us have with our culture, the struggle within us to become a Christ-likeness. But all of this, all of this is temporal. Heaven is forever. And this is what we live for. This is why we are here. This is what we serve for. This is why we make the sacrifices that we make as a church, as individuals we make in the church. Because of Christ's return. And we are Christ. We are his image bearers. And it begins with a genuine salvation, you know, conversion. True believers. It continues then with our desire to then be an imitator of Jesus Christ. An image bearer. That I want to have Christ in me. I want people to be able to look at me and see Jesus Christ. And again, that doesn't happen overnight. Probably doesn't happen until we stand before Christ. It doesn't, isn't completed. But that, that's my goal. That, that's where I'm heading, to be an imitator of him. The result of this is that we will be suffering for Christ. When you are truly walking with the Lord, faithful with him, if Christ is living in you, you you're going to need to take up your cross and follow him. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be loss. You know, and, and, and only when our true nature is that of Christ will we be then a testimony for Christ, a true testimony. Not just of, you know, being accepted and people coming to church and, and liking the ministries or liking the music or liking whatever, but loving Christ. That's our goal. And all of this is shrouded in the fact that we wait for and we live for the return of Christ. That's why we are here. To help one another on that journey until Jesus Christ return. Let's pray together. Father God, I'm so thankful. I, I'm so awed. I'm so humbled to be called your child, to be part of your church, your family. And God, I pray for us, Lord, that you will in the midst of our culture that, that is constantly opposing us, that you will give us the insight, the direction. You will keep us rooted and grounded in the truth of your word. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here, no matter how long they have been saturating their lives with church or with the Bible, God, if they're looking at their heart right now and they aren't sure whether if they died tonight that they would stand before you in eternity, Father, if that surety isn't there, I pray that today this might be the day of their salvation. They'd give their heart to you. They would find forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to keep this focus. I thank you for challenging me, for challenging us today. 